Well, please turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. We are continuing our uh, consideration of the sacrament of baptism. And we'll be considering in part what Peter has to say about uh, this sacrament from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. So please pay careful attention for this is God's word. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone up into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Well, thus ends the reading of God's word. May he again write this word upon our hearts. We'll turn also in your order of worship to the uh, the confessional reading element. This morning we are confessing together Lord's Day 27, and particularly the first two questions of Lord's Day 27. Next week, we will finish our consideration of Lord's Day 27 as we look at question answer 74, which is all about why uh, we baptize uh, infants. So question 72 asks, And again, I'll read the question if you'd please respond by uh, reciting the answer. So question 72 asks, does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Question 73 asks, why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Well, boys and girls, uh, what are the three sections of our catechism, and which section are we currently considering? Violet? Which section are we in? Grace, very good. Uh, And what is is true faith? Yes? Knowledge of sent and trust. Very good. And the content of this faith? Noel? Very good. All right. Now, what is the benefit of professing this faith? Sanctification. Uh, that's true, but I'm looking for another answer, Annabelle. Righteousness. 
uh, the righteousness in Christ, and sanctification as well, which we will uh, actually consider um, in weeks to come. So you're ahead of the, ahead of the game here. Um, so the benefit of faith is that we're justified. Um, and then after we're justified, we're sanctified. Now, what instruments, what means does the Lord use to create this faith within us? The Bible. The Bible. Good. And, and in what form? Annabelle? The preaching of the Holy Gospel. And what other instruments does the Lord use? to confirm our faith. The Holy, the Holy Spirit, yes. The Holy Spirit is the one who, who does the work. Annabelle? Sacraments. sacraments, yes. The Holy Spirit uses the preaching of the gospel and the sacraments to create and confirm faith in our hearts. And so right now we are considering the sacrament of baptism um, as, as a means of grace, one of those instruments that the Holy Spirit uses to nourish and confirm our faith. Now, question answer, uh, Lord's Day 27 is the Lord's Day that addresses infant baptism. Now, I, I've broken up this Lord's Day into two weeks, so next week we will consider the biblical foundations and warrant for baptizing babies, but these two questions, question 72 and, and question 73, also relate to this topic. So I'd like to begin our consideration of infant baptism as we consider these two question and answers. Now, the last several weeks, I've noted that before we can uh, consider the particular sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, we first need to make sure that we have a right understanding of the sacraments in general. And the same is true with infant baptism. Before we can consider the, 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 the subject of infant baptism, we first need to make sure that we have a biblical understanding of the sacraments and of baptism in general. And the question that I had us consider is, who is the doer in the sacraments? Who is the doer in baptism? Is baptism a means uh, for us to serve God or a means for God to serve us? I use the illustration of a playing field. Um, if the sacraments are a playing field, who is on the playing field? When we are baptized, this is an opportunity for us to demonstrate to the world and to God how faithful we are, how strong our faith is, how zealous we are. Or is it primarily an opportunity for God to demonstrate to us his covenantal love and faithfulness and goodwill? I made the argument that it's, it's the latter. The sacraments are God's playing field. Uh, his means to assure and nourish and strengthen his people. And we get this from many passages, but particularly Romans 4.11, where, Abraham, where Paul uh, says that Abraham was circumcised, and for Abraham, circumcision was a sign and seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. Notice that Paul says that circumcision wasn't a sign and seal of Abraham's faith, but of the righteousness that he had by faith. Meaning, circumcision for Abraham functioned as a sign and seal of the gospel, the imputed righteousness of Christ, and not primarily a sign and seal of his personal faith, which again shows us that the sacraments are an opportunity for God to serve us, opportunity uh, for God to demonstrate his character towards his people. Now, when you look at our order of worship, um, sometimes uh, Reformed theologians have described a Reformed liturgy as a dialogue between God and his people. And so you can go through every element of our Reformed liturgy and, 
and, uh, and uh, you can ask yourself, is God the doer or are we the doer? So think about our call to worship. The call to worship, God is the doer. He's the one calling his people to worship. The invocation, that's us responding to the call to worship and asking that the Lord would be present among us. Then God's blessing, that's God blessing us as people. The song of praise, that's us then seeking to respond to that blessing in service to God. And so back and forth, our, our worship service is a dialogue between God and his redeemed people. And so next week, we'll, Lord willing, have a baptism, baptism of our daughter. And when that baptism is listed in the liturgy, is that, is God the doer or are we the doer? And as I've mentioned, God's the doer. That's the, the point in the service, not where we serve God, but where God serves us through not just word, but also his sacrament. And this is very, it's a very, very important presupposition to the topic of infant baptism because if we, if we think that baptism is God's, is our playing field, an opportunity for us to showcase our faith, then infant baptism is going to seem ridiculous. We're going to have no category for it. However, if we understand the sacrament of baptism to be God's playing field where he seeks to assure and remind us of his promises, then infant baptism is going to make a whole lot of sense. We will have a category in our minds for why we administer baptism not only to adults but also to children. And so this is such a a necessary presupposition before uh, we can dive into any of the particulars of, of these sacraments. And stepping back for a moment, when you look at the broader Christian tradition, Catholics, uh, the Reformed, Lutherans, Anglicans are all united on this point. That God is the doer in the sacraments. The sacraments are means of grace. Now we have very, very profound disagreements over the efficacy of the sacraments and of baptism. Like what's going on in baptism. But there's broad agreement that these sacraments and baptism in particular is a means of grace. It's an opportunity where God condescends to his people to deliver his grace. So, we are going to, uh, as I mentioned before, introduce this topic of of infant baptism. And I grew up as a a Baptist in a, a Roman Catholic area, and the Baptist church that I grew up in was largely made up of ex Roman Catholics. And so, the understanding I had as a child of kind of the Christian landscape is that you had Baptists who were seemingly all about the Bible. You had Catholics who believed the Bible, but they didn't care about following the Bible. And then you had sort of these stuffy Protestants in the middle, Presbyterians, Lutherans, who they liked the Bible, they followed the Bible more than Catholics, but they still held on to many vestiges of the Catholic Church. They still had a liturgy. They still recited creeds. They still baptized babies. And uh, uh, so in my mind, growing up, infant baptism practiced among Protestants was really just a leftover from medieval Catholicism. The church hadn't fully reformed enough. And so is that the case? Do we baptize babies just because we are nostalgic for a more historic church? Uh, Do we baptize babies because we're somewhat superstitious and we think that the waters of baptism are, are somewhat magical in washing away sins? Do we baptize babies because we like the hallmark setting of, of seeing a newborn up front and uh, sprinkling water on 
on his or her head? Why do we baptize babies? Well, this, these question and answers will give us uh, a couple reasons for, or at least one reason for why we baptize babies and uh, a reason for why we don't baptize babies, meaning it gives us a negative reason. So you'll see question answer 72 is basically asking, does baptism save? Does baptism save? Now, there are many reasons why we baptize babies, but salvation is not one of them. <laughs> we do not believe that the waters of baptism are magical. Uh, we're not superstitious. We do not baptize babies because we think that they're being regenerated through the waters of baptism. And so question answer 72 is essentially asking, uh, does baptism possess the power of salvation and regeneration in, in its very substance? Now, there are a number of scripture passages uh, that seem to indicate that this is the case. So, for instance, the passage that we just read from, 1 Peter chapter 3, um, verse 21. Peter says, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Peter says, baptism now saves you. Or, think of... In Acts 22, 16, I, I alluded to this last week when Ananias, after the conversion of, um, or Ananias tells, I believe, Paul, uh, be baptized for the washing away of your sins. Equates baptism with the washing away of sins. Or Titus 3, 5. That God saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration. What does this washing refer to? Well, Paul's thinking about the washing of baptism. He's equating the washing of baptism to regeneration. The washing of regeneration. Or think of Ephesians chapter 5, verse 26, when Paul is speaking about marriage and how uh, marriage is a... Um, uh, it relates to Christ's relationship to, to the church. And Paul says in Ephesians 5, 26, that Christ... That, uh, that Christ might sanctify the church, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. So there Paul is equating this, this washing of water, which is allusion to baptism, with spiritual cleansing. So there are a number of passages which seems to equate the waters of baptism with regeneration, with the forgiveness of sins, with salvation. Now what do we do with these passages? Any initial thoughts? Amen. Amen. Yes. That's a good answer. Well, there is a close identity between the sign and the thing signifies. Remember last week, the illustration of a road sign in a city and how there's a distinction between a road sign and the city. They're not the same thing. Uh, but... One thing that we, we learn in scripture from these passages and other passages is that there is a close identity between the sign and the thing signified, between baptism and salvation. And sometimes scripture seems to attribute uh, the sign to the thing signified, which is what we see in, in some of these verses. But there is still yet a distinction between the sign and the thing signified. So we have to embrace both of those, a close identity between the sign and the thing signified, but yet a distinction. So let's use the example of Old Testament sacrifices. So think of uh, Old Testament sacrifices. On many occasions, we learned that these Old Testament sacrifices were administered in order to 
um, take away the guilt of the people's sin, in order to accomplish an atonement before God, in order to bring about the forgiveness of sins. We read that throughout the Old Testament. But then we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, that it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So which one is it? Are the sacrifices of bulls and goats able to take away sins, or, or aren't they? We come across both, uh, both examples in Scripture. Well, we know that the sacrifices in themselves are powerless. The sacrifices in themselves were powerless. However, when faith was present, when the Holy Spirit was present, and the minds of the Israelites were, uh, were brought to Christ ahead of time, then those sacrifices contained power and efficacy to forgive them of their sins. So notice that, that the only times in which those sacrifices were efficacious is when they were tied to Christ and, and, and bringing people are bringing Christ to them ahead of time. But in themselves, they were powerless. So the, the sacrifices of, of so many pagan nations are powerless in themselves, void of Christ. And so when we look at the sacraments, uh, there is this, this idea called the sacramental union, this, this close relationship between the sign and the thing signified. And in themselves, they're powerless. There's nothing magical about the waters of baptism. There's nothing magical about simple wine and simple bread. Uh, we're not superstitious in that sense. However, we do know that when the Holy Spirit is present, he uses these ordinary things to confirm our faith, our faith in Christ. Same thing with the preaching of the word. Think about what the Bible is. The Bible is made up of simple words, language, common language, written on, on simple paper. Uh, we don't worship a book, but yet when the Spirit's present, those simple words uh, help us experience our union with Christ and unite us to Christ by faith. And so we have to make that distinction between um, the sign and the thing signified, but make sure that, that we maintain that close identity between the two. So the question answer 72 tells us equivocally that, that the waters of baptism do not save. It's the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit, this double washing that saves. And baptism uh, is a sign and seal of that reality. Now, question and answer 73 is essentially asking, okay, if, if the waters of baptism don't save, then why does God speak in this way? If God is not saying that baptism in itself saves, then why does scripture speak as if it does? That's why Jesus refers to his cross as a baptism. So when we see the waters of baptism, it should remind us that Jesus experienced all of God's wrath for every single one of your sins. He experienced God's judgment so that you may never be judged. I mentioned last week that quote by uh, a certain theologian who says that we are baptized into the name of Christ because Christ was baptized into your name on the cross. He took your judgment for you. And so when you witness a baptism, it should remind you of the grace of the gospel, of what Jesus did in his baptism, of his blood, of his spirit, which justifies you and sanctifies you. And so, baptism is the grace of the gospel made visible, illustrated. Uh, the gospel, uh, baptism also uh, teaches us about the nature of our life of gratitude. Listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, 
in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Paul there speaks about baptism as being directly connected to our life of gratitude. Baptism, when we see the waters of baptism, we are meant to be reminded of the life of gratitude that we all are called to live according to as the redeemed people of God. And so, baptism reminds us of guilt, of grace, of gratitude, or of sin, salvation, service. The main elements of our catechism. That's what baptism is meant to teach us. Now, the waters of baptism do more than teach us. Uh, They also assure us. And that's what question answer 73 tells us. And this is what distinguishes preaching and the sacraments from a mere lecture. So when we come to church on Sundays, we're not entering a lecture hall. The reason why we're not entering a lecture hall is because of this point. Lectures aim to teach. And yes, preaching and the sacraments aim to teach. But uh, it's not less than that, but it's much more than that. Preaching and the sacraments aim to assure. That's one of the, the distinctiveness. That's, that's something that makes preaching the sacraments distinct. They aim to not only teach, but also assure. Now, again, if we're honest with ourselves, we all have struggled to fully believe and rest in, in the benefits of Christ. To, to really believe that our sins have been forgiven, especially when we're struggling with particular sins, especially when we emotionally feel uh, dirty and filthy. We struggle to believe that our sins are, are wiped away and that we are clean in God's sight. We struggle to believe that God views us as perfectly righteous, especially in those days when we feel as if we're the chief of sinners. How, how can I be viewed as, as perfectly righteous before God because of a, the life of a Jewish man who lived 33 years, 2,000 years ago? It seems outrageous. We can struggle to believe that we actually have the Holy Spirit, that God, the, God himself dwells within us and is changing us and is renewing us and will never leave us. We can struggle to believe that when things seem quite ordinary in our life. Or worse than that, seem, things seem to be quite um, difficult in our life when our emotions feel like they're on a roller coaster. We can, we can struggle to believe that these things are true. And so baptism is meant to assure us as a visible, physical sign that these things really are true for us because it's something that we can physically look to, visibly see, and remember that, yes, my sins are forgiven. Even though it's an invisible reality, it's, it's at times tough to conceptualize, I can look to the waters of baptism. And just as surely as I can see and witness these waters, so surely I can know that my sins have been taken away. Therefore, the waters of baptism are meant to not only teach, but they're also meant to assure. And so the reason why God speaks in this way, the reason why God refers to baptism as uh, that which saves us, the reason why Scripture refers to baptism as a washing of regeneration or, or the sprinkling of Christ's blood or the washing of water with, uh, with the word that cleanses us. The reason God speaks in this way is so that uh, we, we would not trust in our baptism but in Christ and to ensure that we, will, we would never separate the sign of baptism 
from the things signified, meaning we would never divorce baptism from Christ. And this is all too often what can happen in various traditions where the sign is separated from, uh, from, from the things signified. We, we seek to almost worship the sacrament. It's the, the waters of baptism that we're trusting in. It's the waters of baptism that, that took away our original sin and not Christ. But Paul wants to ensure, or Scripture wants to ensure that we would never do that, that we keep baptism intimately connected to Christ and all of his benefits, which uh, we are assured of in these waters. Another reason for why God speaks in this way is he's telling us essentially that baptism is an illustration of the verbal gospel. Uh, he's essentially saying wash, uh, the, the washing of baptism is like regeneration or uh, the, the sprinkling of baptism is like the blood of Christ. Or uh, baptism is like the salvation that we receive in Christ. He's, he's giving us, he's essentially telling us that, that baptism is an illustration of the verbal gospel. Now imagine if I, uh, I came up here on a Sunday and I gave you an illustration, but I never told you what I was illustrating. Utter confusion would ensue. So one of the reasons why the Reformed tradition has, has had a very deep conviction that baptism always needs to be enjoined and tied to the word, the word that's preached, the word that's taught, is the same reason why I don't stand up here on Sundays and give you illustrations and not, and without telling you what I'm illustrating. It wouldn't make much sense for us to administer the illustration of the gospel without telling you what's being illustrated. And this is the reason why our baptisms are always uh, administered in a, a stated service where the preaching of the word is conducted because the word explains, uh, explains baptism and tells us what's being illustrated in the waters of baptism. So it's very important that, that the word is enjoined to uh, the sacrament of baptism. In fact, this is part of the reason why next week Elder Korheis will read a form before the administration of baptism. It's another way in which we are seeking to enjoin the word to baptism so that the congregation knows what is going on in the waters of baptism. We need to connect the illustrated gospel to the verbal gospel. And that's what we seek to do as we administer baptism in, in stated services. Now one further um, uh, comment on this language that's used here, this close, intimate language between the sign and the thing signified. Um, you know, we, we see here that God intends to teach us and assure us through this type of language. Now, one of the, the reforms that the Reformation sought to recover in the 16th century was uh, the connection between baptism and catechesis, especially when it comes to uh, infant baptism. Catechesis was a practice that very much fell to the wayside during the Middle Ages. And so the reformers sought to recover this, this practice of instructing not just the people of God, but particularly the children in the Christian faith. And they saw this as being intimately connected to baptism. When a child is baptized, especially as an as a infant, they're being baptized into the Christian faith. And thus the church in that moment of baptism is, is pledging to catechize that child in that faith uh, to which they're being baptized. This is why, as in the URCNA, one of the duties of elders and pastors is to catechize the baptized covenant children. 
They're baptized into the Christian faith, and consequently the church has a responsibility before God to bring them up in that faith. And their baptism is, uh, essentially sets the scope and sequence of the, the catechetical instruction. The church is essentially called to teach that child what their baptism signifies. And what does their baptism signify? It, it signifies that they belong. They belong to God's covenant community. Uh, we are to teach them to pray, to pray the Lord's Prayer. But then, as I just mentioned, we are to teach them guilt, grace, and gratitude, which is the very structure of our catechism, which was primarily written to instruct baptized covenant children. And so baptism really sets the scope and sequence of the catechetical curriculum for baptized kids. And so when there is a baptized child who then makes profession of faith, this is a, a wonderful moment in the life of the church because this really is a baptismal profession of faith. That child is essentially affirming the faith that they were baptized into. That child is not trusting in their baptism, but responding to their baptism. We call all of our children to respond to the verbal gospel, and we call them to respond to the illustrated gospel, which they've received in the waters of baptism. And so, profession of faith, especially among youth, is a wonderful moment where we see this coming full circle. They're baptized into the Christian faith, and then they affirm that faith and show their response to the illustrated gospel as they profess their faith in the, uh, in the presence of, of many witnesses. And so, when it comes to uh, this issue of, of infant baptism, uh, of course, these question and answers don't directly touch upon the question, uh, but they do so implicitly. Uh, we learn here that we do not baptize babies because we think it saves them. We're not superstitious. We don't think the waters of baptism are magical. Uh, again, as I said before, we also don't do this out of mere tradition or because uh, we want that uh, picturesque hallmark moment. We do this because God cares about the instruction and assurance of his people, and not just adults, but children also. And we as the church, when, when we witness um, an infant baptism, it's a call to us to remember our responsibility of, of taking part in catechizing that child in this faith that they're being baptized into. And so next week, uh, which will correspond nicely with with the baptism that, that uh, of our daughter will be administered in the first service, we'll look at question answer 74, which is a wonderful question and answer. As I've said before, I think this is the, the best and most concise defense for why we baptize babies. And so we'll look specifically at the biblical foundations and reasons for why children should receive the sign and seal of baptism. So let us pray. Merciful Father, we thank you for... Uh, not only your word uh, that comes to us verbally, audibly, and in the pages of scripture, but we also thank you for uh, your word that's illustrated for us in the waters of baptism. Uh, we pray, O oh Lord, that you would indeed, uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit, teach us and assure